Hello, beautiful people, and welcome back to another episode of Search for Consciousness. Today, I am blessed and highly favored to connect with a very in, in excuse me, intellectual and influential young man. I'm excited to connect with him. My brother Marcus Allen has been in this space for over 30 years, writing newspapers, magazines, podcasts. He's been in. He's been in the action. And when I connected with him, I was very excited. So without further ado, let me introduce our guest. Hello, brother, and welcome on the show. Thank you, Stephen. Appreciate the generous introduction. I hope I can live up to it. And I hope your listeners are able to, or your viewers as well, are able to understand and um, agree with or disagree with what I'm going to say. Yes, we sir. We shall see. Well, this podcast is known as the search for consciousness. So I just hope that they learn something. Doesn't mean that they need to resonate or believe it, but I do want them to learn something. So, and I know that you are a great teacher. So why not, right? That's what I started life as. I was a teacher many, many years ago in uh -huh. India, as it happened. Uh -huh. I was teaching out there for a year. It was very interesting. So I suppose I've been a teacher for many years since then as well. Because yes. there are many things I, I look at and discover. Whether people agree with them or not is a, is a matter of small importance. It's a matter of just looking at it. As you say, the consciousness that we have is important. Yes, sir. And you also raise a lot of interesting questions, which the listeners will now be exposed to if they haven't already seen your work. But I guarantee you that my following has either heard of you or have heard of your theories that you popularized. So in essence, they already know of you. So my brother, my first question to you, can you tell us why Nexus magazine? Let me get a copy just so we know what we're talking about. Nexus magazine. The world's leading alternative news magazine has been public, published for the last, uh, was first published in 1987, the time of the planetary alignment, and it's been published continuously since then. I first discovered it, came across it in Glastonbury in the UK in 1992, when a friend showed me a copy of it. And I thought, oh, that's nice, because one of the articles in that, the issue I read, was about um, cars that ran on water. I thought, what is he talking about? Cars that run on water? You can't put cars that run on water. But it was real. Stan Mayer, it was. He was uh, being interviewed and discussing that. And I thought, this is an interesting magazine. There were various other articles in it as well. It covers a lot of areas. Hidden history, future science, conspiracies, UFOs, alternative health, all that sort of thing. That's what Nexus does. And I thought, well, I'd like to get more copies of this, but I couldn't buy it in the UK. So I had to go to Australia to, to speak to the editor. It comes from Australia, does Nexus. Duncan Rhodes is the editor and publisher. And I met him and we got on okay. And he said, oh, you want, to pop you want to distribute in the UK, do you? And I said, yes, I want to distribute Nexus in the UK. Well, here's 500 copies, off you go. See how you get on, let me know. And that's when it started. I first started doing that in 1994. So Nexus in the UK has been around for a while. Nexus in, in the US and in Canada has been around just as long. You can buy in news, news, uh, not news, you buy in news agents in the UK, in, in bookshops in the UK, in the US. Barnes and Noble sell it. Any good bookshop will sell it. So check it out. You know, what, what do you got to lose? It's available throughout the US. So uh, check it out. Definitely. 
Okay, so that that leads to my next question. What is your mission with this field of discovery? It's basically trying to look behind the story. We're, we're forever being fed information. We're forever being fed stories by the media, by newspapers, magazines. And my purpose really, mainly with Nexus, is to say, okay, I see what's being said. Now, in the words of Ronald Reagan many years ago, dealing with the Soviet Union as it was then, when they made a, a statement, he said, trust but verify. Mm. So, yes, you can trust what somebody says, but just verify if what they're saying is true. And a lot of the stories that we have seen over the last uh, few years, not necessarily the truth, the full truth, and nothing but the truth. They have an agenda. There are people who want to manipulate, whether it's in medicine, whether it's in science, whether it's in astronomy or rather space travel, any of these subjects ancient history, uh, ancient Egypt, it's a fascinating area. And there are many people now who are verifying a lot of what we've been told is factually correct. The science is settled, we're told, in many areas, not just climate change, but in many different areas. The science is settled. So don't worry about it. We know what we're talking about. Just get on with your life. No, it doesn't work that way. Because when people have agendas, they tend to disseminate. They tend to push their own part of it and not take into account the other side of it. My point, my point and what Nexus does is to look at the other side of many of these stories, which, which I've been doing for the best part of 60 years. I, uh, I, I read a book many, many years ago. You may have heard of it. It's called Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. It's a very, very famous book. It was first published in the late 1950s. And it was, uh, it's far too complicated a story to get into. It's actually been filmed now. Natalie Shrugged, it's in about three parts. And that was really drawing attention to how some people who contribute a great deal to the human race and the human condition and the human uh, environment are put upon. They're taxed they're manipulated whether governments do it or individuals do it and basically Atlas Shrugged is well if the producers of the world go on strike what would happen hmm. and that's it, it it's a thousand pages so it's a big read but it's a fascinating story it's very well known and it made a big impact on me when I read it uh, the best part of uh, nearly 60 years ago and I thought, well, that's the way it should be. You should always look at both sides of the story and not necessarily believe everything you are told. You have to believe some things because we don't have time to investigate everything. So there are certain areas which I find of interest, space travel being one of them, ancient Egypt being another. And these are areas which I've looked into in considerable detail. I also looked into climate change, but let's not go there because that's very um, exciting when you get into the detail of it. Yes, sir. So there are. So Nexus looks at these areas: alternative health. I mean, many people now are aware that your health is your responsibility. But how do you know what to do? Should you take 
the pharmaceutical industry's advice and ingest their pills on all occasions, because there is a pill for every occasion. And there is probably a, a psychiatric diagnosis for every condition. But is, and then there's a pill that follows that. But is that necessarily the best way to do it? And when you look at the history of modern medicine in, in, in the world, look at how it's been manipulated and how some people have benefited enormously, you think, hang on a minute, there's another story going on here. What don't we know about? You know, when one hears stories about people like Royal Rife, I don't know if you're familiar with him, in the 1930s, he developed a microscope so powerful that it could actually identify viruses. Because viruses are much smaller than bacteria, it could identify viruses. And he discovered through a long series of experimentation that using particular frequencies, these viruses could be destroyed. You think, hang on a minute, what's going on here? If viruses can be destroyed by frequency, sound frequency, you've probably seen the film of an opera singer shattering a glass with a particular note. That's, that's resonance, that's frequency, that's what it's all about. If viruses can be destroyed, using this sort of technology. Why don't we know about it? What's happened? Where did this microscope and the research that Royal Rife did, this was in Canada, in the 1930s, because it would have created a great deal of problems for those who were offering treatments for those diseases. So his, micro his microscope was actually destroyed. Fortunately, somebody's now got the uh, the blueprints of how it was built and it's being looked at again. And then there's another fascinating character, one of my great heroes of, of the scientific world, Nikola Tesla, mm -hmm. after whom the car company is named. What Nikola Tesla did a hundred years ago was remarkable, absolutely incredible. But how many people know about him? How many people could actually tell you what he was doing, what he was investigating? He was looking at the wireless transmission of energy. Hang on, what do you mean wireless transmission? And yeah, exactly what it says. Like radio waves are transmitted through the atmosphere. So he was transmitting energy, but that was destroyed because those people who were financing him, JP Morgan being one of them, couldn't make money out of it. So they had to get rid of him. But there's an interesting connection with Nikola Tesla. You, you, you may be aware that he, he died in 1943, I think it was, in New York. He was living in a hotel in New York. And uh, after his death, which he died alone, because he wasn't married, he had far too much work to get on with in getting married, he, uh, his room was searched by the FBI because they thought he might have some papers that would be of use. Well, maybe they were. He had about 60 boxes of papers that he had uh, accumulated over the years. And one of the, one of the people who was designated to investigate the papers, because it required a great deal of technical knowledge to understand what was going on. One of the people who was designated by the Los Alamos laboratories was a gentleman by the name of John Trump, mm -hmm. name you may be familiar with. Mm -hmm. The president's uncle. So one can be reasonably sure because Donald Trump was very friendly with his uncle when he was alive. And you think that it's possible that um, Donald Trump might well have had information 
through his uncle about Nikola Tesla's activities. That's more than possible. It's not definitive yet, but there are certainly areas that you could be investigated there. So you've got Nikola Tesla, you've got Royal Rife, you've got many other people who've investigated areas of treatment which appear to be just as effective as the the chemical, the burning, the, the extraction techniques of modern medicine. So that's what Nexus does. It looks into the other side of the story, the back part of it. Call us conspiracy theories if you like. I don't care. Because look at, look at those words. Conspiracy theory. It's not conspiracy fact. It's a theory. Now, a theory is an unproven fact. If a theory can be demonstrated to be correct, then it becomes a fact. It's not a conspiracy anymore. Now, where did that term originate from? Conspiracy theory. It's used as a term of abuse in many cases. Where did that originate from? There was a president, John Kennedy, who was assassinated November the 22nd, 1963. I remember it well. I was living in London at the time. I watched all the all the broadcasts about it, and it was a, a seminal event. Anybody alive at the time could tell you what they were doing at the time they actually heard of President Kennedy's death. It was such a, a shocking event that he was a charismatic man. He was succeeding very well, as far as one could tell. There were a lot of things he did wrong, but he was assassinated. He'd gone, finished. A lot of people started looking into his death. What was going on? And then a couple of years after his death, there was something called the Warren Commission Report, which was created by Earl Warren, who was the uh, Chief Justice at the Supreme Court at the time. He was, he was um, commanded by the then President Johnson, Lyndon Johnson, to write the report into what happened. A lot of people didn't agree with that assessment of, of the Warren Commission report and started producing books and films and investigations into other aspects of the assassination which hadn't been properly covered as far as they were concerned. So in order to divert the attention of people from these other stories, the CIA, God bless them, Plans in America, created this phrase, a conspiracy theorist. Hmm. And that's where it originated from, 1965. So it's it's actually a manufactured term used as a propaganda weapon against anybody who disagrees with the mainstream view, the accepted mainstream view. I don't accept it all the time. Neither do I. I appreciate that breakdown. And I appreciate your willingness to almost act as a shield between people with negative intentions and just people searching for the truth. Just listening to you, I was inspired to name this episode The Truth Seeker. So I like it. That, that's it. It's named already. My next question, and it's funny that we're going in this order because I, I do want to get weirder with time, but this is almost like a two-part question. Do you ever fear being, forgive my language, taken out for your willingness to speak truth? 
No, because if I speak truth, then it cannot be disagreed with. Mm. People, people may not like it. People may say, oh, oh Marcus Allen, he's complete, a complete fruitcake. Forget him. He's a nutcase. A lot of people have said that. I just said it myself. I don't agree with it myself. No, if I'm going to be taken out, there were plenty of opportunities for that to happen. Mm -hmm. I've been publishing Nexus now since 1994. If people don't agree with it, and that's not to say that they don't, there are people who don't like Nexus because it doesn't say the things that they want to hear. Mm. But there are thousands of people around the world, tens of thousands of people who do read Nexus. We send it to 35 countries around the world, just from the UK. It's, it's on sale in many countries. Now, if somebody disagrees with it to the extent that I need to be taken out, that won't stop Nexus because I'm not the editor. I'm the publisher in the UK. The editor lives in Australia. His name is Duncan Rhodes. And the, one of the reasons that I won't get taken out is because I'm relatively high profile insofar as I, you know, I'm talking to you now. I've talked to many people. I've appeared on British television, BBC. I've appeared on Spanish television, Russian television, Israeli television, French television, German television. If I got taken out, there are one or two people who might say, oh, look, Marcus has been taken out. That must be because what he said was true. Mm -hmm. So in effect, I'm protected by being high profile. Hmm. But whether I'm high profile or not is quite another matter. In, in fact, I've, I've got a piece here. This is a piece of moon rock, by the way, piece of moon rock. Now, I'm not supposed to have that. Members of the public are not supposed to own a piece of moon rock like that. So if NASA want to come and get it back, you know where I live. <laughs> well, I have not. I've been showing this piece of moon rock for years now, ever since I first got it. I won't say how I got it, but that's another story. If, you know, if NASA wants it back, come and get it. Now, if they do come and get it, they've destroyed the whole story because it proves it's true. <laughs> It's called it's called a checkmate move, yes, and that's what people that's what people have to do. They have to get a checkmate move in place. No, that's genius. I like that. I like that a lot because I see myself going down a similar path. So I have to almost relinquish fear of what can happen, and I stand on the back of truth. You eliminate yeah. me. You just confirm that what I'm doing is troublesome to certain communities. So that actually segues into my next question. And thank you for showing me the moon rock. I've never seen one. Um, do you believe in the Illuminati or a group of people that control the planet? To be honest, not in so many words, no. Um, it's easy to point to an anonymous group of people who control the planet. There are groups of people, very powerful, very wealthy, very influential people who run businesses, run governments, if you like, run organizations which have enormous power. They don't always agree with each other. Like any group of people doesn't always, don't always agree with everybody in that group. So a lot of things go on with these so-called Illuminati. Uh, the term originated in I think, 1776 in Bavaria and Germany. 
Um, I've seen no evidence that there is that sort of organization, because I don't think they could agree it. I think there are too many people who would put the spoke in, put, want to do something else. Mm -hmm. There are certainly people who, who organize enormously powerful companies, yes, which have enormous influence. There are people who run banks. Banks have a great deal of influence because they control the one thing everybody wants more of, money. Yes, that sort of stuff. Folding money, drinking vouchers, whatever you want to call it. And now we have credit. Oh, credit's wonderful, isn't it? But basically, money's only been around in that form for about 300 years. I mean, mm. to go into the history of money, it would, would take too long. But there are people who control the flow of money. Mm -hmm. Whether they are working in concert with each other, I don't think so. I don't think to that extent. Because I think they're all like you, me, and everybody else around. You know, we're humans. We aren't some sort of strange, otherworldly creature. We all eat things. We all shit the stuff out. We all do what, every, what, everybody, what other humans do. But there are people who are highly intelligent, highly motivated. You know, this is why men always reach the top of organizations, because they're highly motivated. They're prepared to take whatever risks they're around. Women don't have that, that option. Women have another equally important, if not even more important, place in society. They give birth. They produce the next generation. They, they produce the environment for homes to exist, for families to grow up. They're very, they're, that's important, but they're not recognized as such. And that is one of the tragedies of modern civilization. Hmm. It's changing, fortunately. We're seeing a great deal of movement in the direction that women are as important. In, in my case, I think women are more important than many men around. But the ideas that men come up with can be very, very revolutionary. But I don't think they're the Illuminati, no. Well, th thank you for that piece. I agree with okay. you that um, to label them as one group is very difficult to do. But I appreciate that information because then it gets me to question who's really running society, right? <laughs> so, you know, now after researching a lot of what you have published over the years, many things stand out to me. But I wanted to now focus a little bit on the whole moon landing. You raised amazing points going from the photography to, you know, the radiation in the spacesuits. So I wanted to know if you wanted to cover a little bit about why you think the moon landing was faked. And then I wanted to ask you, what else do you think America has covered up? And I know that'll take 50 years to explain, but... Oh. Mm -hmm. Okay, why do I think the moon landing is faked? Trust, but verify. Do I trust NASA to tell the truth about all things all the time? No, I want to verify it. And that's what everybody should do. Now, what I'm going to say now may trigger certain people into posting rude comments underneath this uh, podcast. Fine, go ahead. Because that will tell me tell more about you posting it than it will about me saying it. So bear that in mind. Right. 
you have to put you have to put the Apollo lunar the moon landing program into its the context of its time when it happened the late 1960s early 1970s what was also going on at the time there was the space race mm-hmm. Apollo and the Russian program to do the same thing to land they were they were going to do it they had a rocket to do it trouble is the rocket didn't work but that's another story there was the Cold War going on. America is better than Russia. Russia's better than America. We got bigger bombs. We can drop more bombs on you than you. That was the Cold War. It's not going on anymore. Not to the same extent. There was also the Vietnam War going on. It finished in 1975. It was started by President Johnson. And there was an incident called the Gulf of Tonkin incident in 1964 where an American destroyer was patrolling the Gulf of Tonkin off the coast of Vietnam and the report was it was attacked by torpedo boats that report was false fake fabricated it was not true as was agreed many years later by Robert McNamara who was then the Secretary of State who was one of the principal proponents with Johnson of the Vietnam War. What was, what was Vietnam? A, how was Vietnam a problem to America? It's a long way away. It's a relatively small country. Oh, it was the communist invasion. It was the domino theory. If, Cam, if Vietnam falls to communism, then Cambodia will and Laos will and Thailand will, and we can't have that. So let's just go in and wreck the place, and then we won't have to worry about it. I mean, for goodness sake, looking back now, 40, 50 years later, the Vietnam War was a monumental mistake and a monumental disaster. It solved nothing. Vietnam is now a relatively prosperous country. They've rebuilt themselves. So what the hell was going on? Anyway, that was going on at the same time as the Apollo program. Apollo was the good news. One thing I will say about America, it does not have the option of coming second to anybody as we've seen over the years. America, it's a very powerful country. Its military budget is 10 times the size of the, of the next, I think, no. America's military budget is the equivalent of the next 10 countries combined. So it's going to use it. I mean, what's the point of building all these wonderful bombers that'll fly at the speed of sound, the speed of light almost, drop bombs that you can't see or hear? What's the point of doing that if you're not going to use them? And the companies that build those bombers and planes and rockets and missiles, they want them to be used because then they get replaced. Wonderful system. So let's have a war. We'll have a war and then we've got to replace all the things that have been destroyed. It's a great system. It's been going on for years. But I say, President Johnson took over from John Kennedy in 1963. He was sworn in in Air Force One on the ground at uh, Dallas following the assassination. At that time, Kennedy was trying to to reduce the, the troop movement into Vietnam. They were there to advise the South Vietnamese government. When President Johnson got in, he increased the American military force by 10 times. So he was doing what was he he was doing what he was being asked to do he was 
generating a war. <coughs> the French hadn't succeeded in, in beating the Vietnamese. The French had been chucked out. So America were going to go. Between 1964 and 1975, America lost 58,000 American, American citizens and 3 million Vietnamese were killed. That is the price you pay for incompetence in government or people who are totally unaware of the damage their decisions are having. It's a tragedy, but that was going on at the same time as Apollo. Apollo, as I say, was the good news. There were deaths in Apollo, the three astronauts on Apollo 1 who got into their capsule on, on the ground. They were doing a test and get this, capsule was pressurized at 22 pounds per square inch with pure oxygen. Any schoolboy will tell you if you do that and then introduce a, a spark, the oxygen's going to go boom. That's what happened. It did. They couldn't get out because the craft was designed so badly, the door only opened inwards and the pressure inside the craft was so great they couldn't get it open. So three very brave astronauts died due to incompetence. And that virtually brought the Apollo program to, to an end. But that, that happened on January the 27th, 1967. The following December, December 1968, we have Apollo 8 orbiting the moon. What? In that period of time, they orbit the moon. The first time that had ever been done with humans on board orbiting the moon, 1968, December 1968, Apollo 8. They were the people who read from the book of Genesis, created a bit of a problem there, but never mind, it was a relatively minor thing. The craft they were traveling in had not been tested prior to that launch. And when you go into space, there are various things you have to be aware of. There are problems of humans going into space. And one of them is the re-entry back to Earth. Because if you go into space, that's fine. You can set an unmanned craft into space. You don't really care what happens to it. In fact, very few of those have ever come back. But if you send humans into space, they've got to come back, which is what President Kennedy's challenge was to land man on the moon before the decade is out, return them safely to the Earth. So they had to be returned to Earth. So how do you do that? You put them in a spacecraft, launch them up. When you're going to go to, to the moon, you leave Earth at the same at the same speed you return at, 25,000 miles an hour. Very fast indeed. So you've got to slow down. Spacecraft don't have brakes. You can't stop. You've got to use the frictional if effect on the spacecraft of the atmosphere of the Earth, which starts which goes only goes up 60 miles, the atmosphere of the Earth. Beyond that, it's so thin it has no effect. So the spacecraft will come in from orbit. It'll travel towards Earth at a relatively low angle, six and a half degrees, and it will hit the atmosphere. The heat will build up and it will slow down. But in order to do that, the heat is generated by the heat shield coming in is so great, you have to have a heat shield to protect the astronauts in their spacecraft. So they had this heat shield, which hadn't been tested for Apollo 8. Now, just to move forward a little bit, in December 2014, we have Apollo 2.0, it's called Orion, 
it looks very similar to Apollo, the Apollo spacecraft. It's a bit bigger. And they were testing it in December 2014. And they put it, they sent it out three and a half thousand miles, so it comes back. We'll get to the radiation in a minute. Comes back pretty fast, not full return speed, but pretty fast. But the heat shield almost failed. This is why it's never flown since. Orion has not flown since December 2014. But the other thing was that covering the whole of the Orion spacecraft was the heat shield tiles used on the space shuttle. Why do you need heat shield tiles on the outside of the Orion craft? We didn't have it on Apollo. Apollo was made of aluminium. Hmm. Aluminium melts at 600 degrees centigrade. The Orion craft was covered in heat shield. Why? It makes no sense unless they had discovered by that time that no Apollo craft could have return from lunar orbit at the speed generating the heat that it did and survived hmm. but they all survived all the Apollo astronauts survived re-entry into the Earth's atmosphere that, that, that's just one aspect of it and the other one probably even more uh, problematic for those who try to claim that NASA that, that Apollo was a real event they've never addressed one of the major problems which is known to exist in space there's no secret about it it's called the vacuum of space now the vacuum of space means there's nothing there it's empty it's gone you can calculate the heat of any object in space it's called the black body radiation temperature black body radiation temperature calculation it uses something called the Stefan Boltzmann constant and you can calculate the heat of any body in space, like the Earth or the Moon or Jupiter or Venus. You can calculate the heat. So you can calculate the heat of a spacecraft in space because it's receiving heat from the sun. I mean, what else, where else does the heat come from? We all get heated on, on Earth by the sun. It's very nice when you get the right temperature. In space, what's the temperature of a spacecraft? 250 degrees Fahrenheit inside the spacecraft. You can do the calculation because you get heat coming in. Yes, you get heat radiated out, but it only radiates out when there's an equilibrium temperature, i.e. when the spacecraft is at a temperature that the heat coming in is equal by the heat being emitted. And the heat being emitted is the same as the heat coming in. But in order to get to that equilibrium temperature, the temperature inside the spacecraft can be calculated, 250 degrees Fahrenheit. You can cook your chicken at that temperature. So how did the astronauts survive? And that's not the worst part of, the, of, of space travel, because we saw all these wonderful photographs. Remember these wonderful photographs? Man on the moon is supposed to be Buzz Aldrin. We don't know it's Buzz Aldrin. He's just got a, a name on his on his front there, but it could be anybody. We can't see his face. Anyway, that was supposedly taken on the on the lunar surface in the vacuum of space. Now we now know that photographic film, and that was what that was taken with photographic film. This stuff. The very 20th century. This, by the way, this is photographic film. 
a lot of people probably have never seen a piece of photographic film. This is what you put inside a, a 35 millimeter camera, Nikon, Canon, Minolta, whatever, Pentax. That's photographic film. That's made of plastic on the back, polyester base, and it has emulsion coated onto it, which is light sensitive. That's what photographic film did. It recorded light. Now, in space, photographic film is destroyed by the vacuum of space. Hmm. How, do we, how do we know this? Because there were two satellites or two spacecraft which carried photographic film on board. One of them was the Lunar Orbiter, not to be confused with the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, which came much later. The Lunar Orbiter flew in 1966. There were five missions sent to the moon to photograph the lunar surface. See, what, where, where are we going to land? This is when they were trying to do it. Where are we going to land? Well, let's photograph the place so we can see it with some good sight. You know? They want a place with big rocks or big holes. And they found a few places. And it was photographic film they used. And that was carried on board the Lunar Orbiter spacecraft. The other craft that used photographic film was called the Hexagon Spy Satellite technically the KH-9, Keyhole 9. That carried photographic film to photograph Russian rockets, aircraft, uh, Russian naval ports, anything that America wanted to find out about Russia. Because remember Gary Powers was shot down in his U-2 spy plane? President Eisenhower had to agree that there would be no more overflights. But what he didn't say was there'd be no more rockets. So launch a rocket up and you can go into an orbit and as you go around you can photograph whatever you want to <coughs> hexagon spy satellite carried photographic film and i attended a lecture in london about three years ago by the guy who designed the camera system for the hexagon spy satellite and he said almost in an offhand way as if everybody knew it well of course we had to pressurize the film because the film can't work in a vacuum i thought what's he talking about Film can't work in a vacuum. I never heard this before. This was only three years ago. And the reason I'd only just heard it is because the components and the manufacturer of the hexagon spy satellite was classified, obviously. America doesn't want people to find out what they're doing and how they're doing it. So this whole system, the whole camera system on the hexagon spy satellite was a classified, classified information. Obviously, the people who were working on it knew about it. And this guy said, well, of course, what we had to do was to put all the photographic film, and there were 30 miles of it in the spacecraft, and the camera system, and the transport of the film through the camera into the buckets that drop them out of the spacecraft, we had to put it into a sealed, pressurized container within the spacecraft. But I've never heard this. Nobody had ever talked about pressurized film having to pressurize film in a vacuum because otherwise the film doesn't, doesn't work. So some friends of mine in Canada went out and bought a vacuum chamber to create the environment to see if what I said was correct. And they got the vacuum chamber. It was a commercial vacuum chamber, about the size of a large bin, and put a piece of film in it, took the pressure down, or in increase the vacuum, however you want to describe it, put the film into a camera, took a few pictures with it, 
and the film was wrecked. The colour balance of the film was completely shot. So they thought, no, no, that was a mistake. They got the same film that was used on Apollo, Kodak S-Star-based film, transparency material, and black and white, because black, black and white and colour were used, and tested it. And yes, the film is destroyed. It can't record the information correctly. The colour balance is shot. Hmm. Now, the other point about vacuum is that when you're on Earth, we don't experience vacuum because we're not in a vacuum. We're in a pressurized environment. At sea level, we have 14.7 pounds per square inch of pressure pressing down on us on all sides. We don't feel it because we, inside our body, there's a similar pressure forcing out. You go to the top of Mount Everest, 30,000 foot high, the pressure there is five pounds per square inch. You fly to 60,000 feet, where Concorde used to fly, and it's one pound per square inch. You go much higher than that, and it starts to get into 0.1 or 0.001 pound per square inch, because there's less atmosphere to press down. That's, that's all a vacuum is. It's just nothing there. When you get into the space, vacuum is measured in something called TOR, T-O-R-R, named after Evangelisca Torricelli an Italian scientist who developed the barometer back in the 17th century. It was named after him. So when you get to space, you have 10 to the minus 3 tor. That's one thousandths. When you get to the moon, get this, you get 10 to the minus 12. It's so minute. There's nothing, there's it's, it's almost a perfect vacuum. You can't have a perfect vacuum because there's always going to be something around. But to, it's not possible, as far as I'm aware, it is not possible to create that level of vacuum here on Earth. Hmm. There was something called the Glenn Research Center in Ohio. It's built by NASA to test a lot of their equipment. But that could only produce a vacuum of 10 to the minus 6. Not enough to test something going to the moon. It's very hard to produce something with a vacuum level at that height. Hmm. So if anybody disagrees with me, please prove me wrong when I say that none of the photographs, these ones, and the 5,771 other photographs taken on the lunar surface, allegedly, by the 12 named Apollo astronauts, were taken with photographic film because digital cameras were not invented until 1975. Hmm. So they had to be photographic film. And there's no dispute about that because NASA keeps saying, oh, we've got all these thousands of photographs. Yes, they have. You can see them online. You've gone to about four websites and see all the photographs taken on Apollo. Great. I've looked at most of them. Most of them are extremely boring. Some of them are out of focus. Some of them don't here to show anything of interest. A lot of them are just duplicated images of the lunar surface, as if that was important. <coughs> Some of them are quite good. One or two of them are remarkably iconic. It's the iconic ones I dispute. So if anybody can prove me wrong when I say, look, photographs couldn't be taken on the lunar surface by the named astronauts using the camera that we're told was taken, the Hasselblad camera, which had no protection around it, 
then I want to hear about it. Because I don't necessarily get everything right. But I think when I look at the, the, uh, the problems that we're now having, getting back into space, have they learned any lessons? Have SpaceX and Blue Origin and the other companies who are trying to replicate what Apollo did 50 years ago, have they actually read the reports and checked them out? Do they know what vacuum does to material? Because vacuum does has two major effects. It's called outgassing, where anything that is liquid, originally liquid-based, the vacuum will literally rip out the lighter elements. And it will do the same with metals. Quite a lot of metals have hydrogen, helium, some of the lighter elements, they get ripped out. If these, and anybody who's done that famous school experiment where you get a, a vacuum jar and, and you put a, a, a bowl of water in it and reduce or create the vacuum inside the jar, the water appears to boil. That's outgassing. It's very simple. Hmm. And cold welding is where metals in contact with each other in a severe vacuum literally weld themselves together. Because the metals, when the, the lighter elements in the metals come out, forced out in, in, in a form of outgassing, they don't know whether they're supposed to be in that bit of metal or that bit of metal. So they sort of intermingle and the metals get welded together. Hmm. And there was an interesting situation about uh, was it a couple of years ago, three years ago, the Israelis launched um, a satellite to the moon called Berefit. And he very nearly got there, got to within a few miles of the lunar surface. And then it sort of went wrong. Hmm. We, were told, we were told it was the engine mounts had, uh, had malfunctioned. Now, this is my speculation, but uh, I, I was on Israeli television talking about the moon landings and mentioned this. And I said, look, if those engine mounts were made in were 3D printed, which I believe they were, if they were 3D printed, were they tested in a vacuum before being launched? They said, I don't know. So if they weren't tested and the, the engine mounts failed, that is an effect of vacuum. Mm -hmm. So we, we've got all these problems. So you've got the vacuum of space, you've got the temperature of space, which you have to protect you. We're very delicate little creatures, we, us humans. You know, we don't like loss of temperature. We don't like loss of cold. And we certainly don't, don't like loss of vacuum because we can't survive it. So we have to take our, our pressure suits with us when we're going into the vacuum of space. And then there's radiation. But let us, let's not go there for the moment. It's a bit complicated, the radiation. But that's equally bad for humans. What radiation does is damage your DNA. It just strips them out. And uh, hence, you get mut uh, mutations. So I want to jump in. Thank you for that elaborate breakdown. That taught me a lot. So I have a lot more to research. You know, I'm sad yeah. in a way because for sake of time, I don't think Zoom will allow us to get into the Egyptian part of the discussion. So maybe you and I can collaborate a future episode where we can focus on 
the Egyptian side of your studies because I was so ready with the deal right if I'm pronouncing that correctly and the uh, helicopter panel of the temple of Seti like I, I really took a lot of time to to learn from you and about you so okay. before they kick us out I wanted to know if we can get into just your ideas of nanotech the virus quote unquote COVID and mRNA technology. What do you think is happening there? And, and what's Marcus's ideas on that? I'm just waiting for the animal experiments to be completed. Got you. So uh, I, I prefer, shall we say to um, not refuse. I, I don't refuse a vaccine because I'm, I'm offered a flu vaccine every year. You can tell I'm old enough to get it. And I always say, no, I'd prefer just to delay it a bit. So when a vaccine comes along, in fact, it's not referred to as a vaccine very much. It's called a jab, mm -hmm. um, which is not quite the same thing. Um, look into the history of vaccination. Mm -hmm. You know, why, why is it called a vaccination? It's named after the, the original experiment, which was uh, to do with cowpox. Mm -hmm. And vache is the French for cow. And it was a French scientist who was doing the original experimentation, hence vaccination. Uh, I'm not 100% behind the, the science of it. Um, what I'm noticing is an increasing level of propaganda forcing people to agree to it. Where's that coming from? And why is that so important? Hmm. Why is it? Is it because we've got to protect everybody so we should all get jabbed? And I've seen the list of ingredients in the mRNA vaccine, and I'm not impressed. There are some side effects we're not being told about yet. I think those are coming out. But by the time everybody's being jabbed, it may be too late. So I'm not keen because I'm not, imp I'm not impressed by the promotion of it mm. because there's, there's too much money at stake. There's a lot of money at stake on this, as there is with all vaccine programs and all medicines. There's a lot of money. It's, it's all to do with money. Um, no, not impressed. And I, would, I would just say, you know, if anybody's wondering, just, you know, you don't have to rush into these things. Just take it easily. This is a disease, this, this COVID thingy that we're being told is so terrible. It has a 99.97% survival rate, even if you get it. It's not, it's not going to damage you. Yes, if you're elderly and you have pre-existing conditions, yes, you may get pushed over the edge. But you probably would have with flu anyway. The flu is very similar. And now we're hearing all these stories about Dr. Fauci and his um, behavior with the Wuhan Institute of Virology and his financing of gain-of-function research. What the hell is that about? Gain-of-function is making things worse. It's turbocharging a virus to make it more infectious. What? Why should you want to do that? What is that about? And why should American tax dollars be financing it? I don't get it. I really don't. And that is what people, a lot of people are questioning. Last Sunday, the end of June, 
over a million people were marching through London saying, remove it, stop all this lockdown. There's probably protests going on around the world. There are protests going on in Australia, I know, in Germany, in Italy, right across the world, probably many in America, Canada. <clears throat> there are so many people who are prepared to take their time out, walk through streets, protesting against something that they don't agree with. Where's the democracy behind it? Where's the people who are taking notice of it and discussing it and debating it? You're not allowed to debate it. You know, if, if you mention something like this, you're taken off YouTube, you're taken off Google, you, you, you're, you're non-personed, you're cultured, you're cancelled. How is that democratic? You may not agree, people probably won't agree with me, maybe people won't agree with you. That doesn't matter. Make a better argument in favour of what you say. Don't just say, oh, I can't be listening to him. Go away, go away, go away. Oh, he's bad, he's bad. Don't listen to him. No, that's not the way democracy works. You debate things, you discuss things. You say, okay, this is what you say. Now prove it, demonstrate it. Where's the evidence? <coughs> when I talk about the moon landings, I can produce evidence for what I say. I'm not just making stuff up. You may think I am and you may say I am. And anybody who starts attacking me for what I'm saying and probably attacking you as well, producing what's called ad hominem attacks, i.e. attacks against the person, not the argument, has lost the argument, literally lost the argument. That's all I'd say. That was brilliant. I agree with you. I think I must have channeled you a few <laughs> months ago. I did an episode where I said, Listen, I'm not here to argue. I'm just here to provide some evidence and some things to question. Now, I hope you agree. And, and actually, quite frankly, I hope you disagree because I want to be disproven because then that would make me feel better about choosing to take the vaccine, which I have not taken up to point. No, have I. You are a wise man. I think I'll leave it at that. I enjoyed our conversation. Before I wrap it up, how can we find you, access you, and communicate with you? Because I know people would love to learn more from you directly as well. Okay. You can go through nexusmagazine.com website, and there's a contact sheet on there. Just put a message there, say you, you want to send an email to, to me, nexusmagazine.com. Or if you want to get hours and hours, days, weeks even, of reading about the Apollo fraud, go to aulis.com. That's A-U-L-I-S.com. Aulis.com. It's run from the UK and it's got probably the best, well, certainly not probably, it certainly has the best collection of articles. Quite a few from Russian scientists and cinematographers. Uh, one, one particular sequence is to do with uh, how they did it. It's called it was, it was a, a video posted online about five years ago called Make Believe Smoke and Mirrors. It's a long video. It's been cut down with some subtitles about how the whole thing was done. It's highly technical. And I have a theory as to where it was done, where the, where the filming was shot uh, in uh, Menlo Park in California. Hangar One, you can see it on Google. It's such a big place. And the film was processed probably at 
look at Mountain Laboratory, north mm. of Hollywood, or north of Los Angeles, on Laurel Canyon, a famous repute. Mm. That's where a lot of, a lot of um, entertainers lived in the 1960s, Laurel Canyon. Look at Mountain Laboratory. It's a private house now. Uh, it used to be a US Air Force film laboratory. But that's just my theory. But it was certainly done. There was certainly a lot of remarkably, achieve, uh, remarkably professional um, film creation using optical printers to create the different slow motion. There's seven different slow motion rates in the films. It's not just one, there's seven different ones, different mm. film sizes, different film stock, using periscope cameras, using models. Extraordinary achievement as to who did it. I have my theories, but it's possible to find out. Go to owlis.com, A-U-L-I-S.com. Or if you want lots and lots of me and other people talking about the whole thing, go to Apollo Detectives on YouTube. Just put in Apollo Detectives and you get lots and lots, about 800 videos up there at the moment. And if you want to see an Australian version of the same, of, of all this stuff, go to moonfaker.com. That's Jarrah White in Australia, who's done six, seven hundred films about how Apollo was not true. There's a lot of evidence out there if you take the time to look at it and check it out. So that's all I say. Owlist.com, nexusmagazine.com, Apollo Detectives on YouTube, and moonfaker.com. There you go. Amen. So on that... <laughs> On that note, let's just thank my brother for his time, his mission, and I will do my best to continue to search for knowledge. On that note, your new name for me is the Truth Seeker, and I would love to build round two about Egypt. Thank you guys for listening. Episodes drop every Sunday at 4 Eastern time. Big shout out to our brother Marcus Allen. You're incredible and well-researched. Thank you again, and I hope you guys enjoyed this episode.